Chapter 54 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Oystein Magnusson's Reign, the Acquisition of Jämtland. During Sigurd's absence, Oystein ruled the kingdom with great ability. He showed rare talent for administration, and furthered a peaceful development with such devoted interest that his reign is remembered as one of the most benign and prosperous in the history of the country. He is described as a man of medium size with blue eyes and light curly hair. He had acquired extensive legal knowledge, and he distinguished himself through equanimity and great wisdom in counsel. The people loved him highly for his friendly and cheerful disposition and his love of peace and justice. His brother Sigurd Jorsalafar, crusader, was not like him. He had auburn hair, and was tall and well-built, but not good-looking. He was a great athlete and a very ambitious prince, but usually gloomy and reticent. At times he showed a violent temper, and he often punished offenders severely, but he was generous to a fault, frank, brave, and upright. The more untoward traits of his character can only be explained as an inception of insanity, which in his later years enveloped him in mental darkness. With the instinct of a statesman, King Oystein soon took steps to join the province of Jämtland to the Norwegian kingdom. This independent border district had been settled in early days by colonists from Trundelagen, and when Harald Harfagra had won all Norway, Many people who were dissatisfied with the new order of things emigrated into Jämtland and the neighboring districts, Helsingland and Herjedelon. We have seen that in the time of Haakon the Good, the people of Jämtland voluntarily placed themselves under the authority of the king of Norway, as they preferred his overlordship to that of the Swedish king. This step proves that they considered themselves as Norsemen. The province belonged to Norway till in the time of King Olaf the Saint, when it was seized by the king of Sweden, and it remained a Swedish dependency until it was reunited with Norway in Oystein's reign. In ecclesiastical affairs, however, it always formed a part of the diocese of Uppsala. Herjedelan, which is often mentioned together with Jämtland, belonged to the diocese of Trondhjem, and seems always to have been a Norwegian province. King Oystein sent messengers to Jämtland to the wisest and most powerful men, says the saga and invited them to visit him. He received with great cordiality those who came, and gave them valuable gifts. He also sent presents to some who did not come, and in this way he gained the friendship of all those who ruled that country. He spoke to them and showed them that the people of Gameland had acted unwisely in withdrawing their allegiance and their taxes from the kings of Norway. He mentioned that the people of that province had given their allegiance to Haakon Adelstein's foster, Haakon the Good and had long remained subject to the Norwegian kings. He pointed out how many necessary articles they could get from Norway, and how much trouble it would cause them to get what they needed from the king of Sweden. He succeeded so well with his arguments that the people of their own accord made an offer, and asked that they might be allowed to pledge their allegiance to King Oystein, which they termed their need and necessity. The union was brought about in the following manner. The leading men asked the people to take an oath of fealty, and afterwards they went to King Oystein and gave him the country. How the province of Jämtland could be enticed away from Sweden and joined to Norway without causing an open rupture between the two countries, it is not easy to explain, even if, according to Oystein's view of the matter, Norway still had a valid claim to this border district which Sweden had unrightfully seized. 
The inactivity of the Swedish king must have been due to circumstances which made it impossible for him to pay attention to this distant province, but what these circumstances were is left to conjecture. If King Inge Stenkelson was still alive, which is not known, he was now an aged man, possibly too weak to take a very active part in the affairs of state. If he was dead, it is not improbable that jealousy between rival candidates for the throne had temporarily crippled the government, and that King Oyston used such a moment of weakness for his shrewd and well-planned move. Monasticism made its appearance in Norway at this time, and several monasteries of the Benedictine order were built during the 12th century. Sigurd Ulstring founded a monastery of this order, probably in 1104, and King Oyston began the erection of a St. Michael's church and monastery at Nordness, near Bergen. The buildings were large stone structures, but it is not known whether they were finished in Oyston's time. It has been thought that the St. Albinus Monastery at Selja, and the three nunneries, Gimse at Skien, Nonesether in Oslo, and Baca in Trondheim, were also founded in Oyston's reign, but this is doubtful. The St. Albanus Monastery is not heard of till in King Sverre Sigurdsson's reign, and the nunneries are not mentioned till in the second half of the 12th century. The rules of the order required the Benedictine monks to divide the time not spent in devotional exercises between physical labor, especially gardening and horticulture, and study, which consisted chiefly in the copying of books and manuscripts. They introduced many new varieties of plants and trees, and the fruit raising, which now flourishes in many districts of Norway, was developed mainly by their skillful and painstaking efforts. To their literary activity we are indebted, especially for some valuable works in the early history of Norway, the most noteworthy of which is the Historia de Antiquitate Regum Norwegiensum by Theodricus Monachus. Owing to the interest of the kings in religious matters, Norway was fast swinging into line with regard to church organization and ecclesiastical affairs generally. The Diocese of Bergen was divided, and a new bishopric was established at Stavanger. No city had yet been founded there, but wharves had been built on the fine harbor, which was visited by merchant ships in great numbers. When the bishop's residence was located there, a new development began, and Stavanger is spoken of as a city already in the latter half of the 12th century. Reinald, Regnald, a Benedictine monk from Winchester, England, was made bishop, and his first thought seems to have been to erect a cathedral church, which of necessity had to adorn every bishop's seat in those times. It was a great undertaking, as the cathedrals were built by the church, not by the state, but the Catholic bishops were men of wealth and power. They had the rank of jarls and enjoyed a princely income. Large tracts of land had been granted to the diocese, and when King Sigurd the Crusader introduced the system of tithes, the bishops also received one-fourth of this new revenue. They had also a considerable income from royal fiefs and from fines paid by those who transgressed against the ordinances of the church. For undertakings of special importance, the bishop could also call upon the people for a general contribution. A cathedral was erected, which is still the pride of the beautiful city of Stavanger. It was built in the Romanesque style after the pattern of the Winchester Cathedral in England, and seems to have been completed about 1150. It was dedicated to St. Swithun, Bishop of Winchester in England, 837 to 862, and a shrine containing some relics of the saint, which had been brought from England for the purpose, was deposited in the church. A new bishopric was also established at Holar in Iceland in 1106, and a cathedral was erected at Kirkeberg in the Faroe Islands, where a diocese was now permanently established. 
The attempt of Bishop Eric Gnupsen of Greenland to Christianize the Skrælings in Vinland has already been mentioned elsewhere. He was evidently lost on the voyage, as he was never again heard of. King Oystein erected churches in Trondheim and at Trondenes in Nordland. In Bergen, he built a royal residence, which was said to be the finest wooden structure in Norway. Close to this hall, he built the Apostle Church, which was used as a royal chapel. Oystein's efforts were wholly directed towards the peaceful upbuilding of the kingdom through internal improvements and the encouragement of commerce. He constructed a new harbor at Agdenes, at the entrance to the Trondheimsford, and improved the harbor of Sundholm Sound near Bergen. On the mountaintops along the coast he caused beacons to be erected for the guidance of mariners. These improvements were of importance to commerce, which was developing rapidly at this time, especially through the increased export of herring and codfish. The numerous pilgrimage to St. Olaf's shrine had increased travel across the Dover Mountains, but as the journey through the wilds from eastern Norway to Trondheim was difficult and dangerous, Oystein erected three mountain stations where travelers could find shelter and refreshments. Though primarily intended for pilgrims, these stations proved to be such an aid to all travelers that the traffic across the mountains was greatly increased. The relation between the kings, though peaceful, was not cordial, and at times it was marred by more serious clashes provoked by Sigurd's jealous disposition and violent temper. Snorra has pictured an altercation between them in the Heimskringla, in the happiest vein of his inimitable style. The episode as he describes it must be regarded as drama rather than history, but it gives a most vivid picture of the temper and character of the two kings. One winter, the kings Oystein and Sigurd were entertained in Oplandena, and each had his own residence. But as the estates where they were to dwell were not far apart, their followers agreed that the kings should stay together, and that they should visit one another in turn. At first they were all assembled at the home of King Oystein, but in the evening, when the drinking feast began, the ale was not to their liking, and the men were reticent. Oystein said, The men are silent, but it is more in coming with custom to be merry over the drinking cup. Let us have some merriment, and there will still be good cheer among the men. It is proper, Brother Sigurd, that we should begin some jocular conversation. But Sigurd replied curtly, Be as talkative as you please, but allow me to be quiet. King Oystein said, It has often been customary at the drinking feast that one compares himself with another, so let it be now. But Sigurd remained silent. I see, said Oystein, that I have to begin this diversion. I will compare myself with you, brother. I must mention that we are equal in honor and possessions, and there is no difference in our descent or education. King Sigurd answered, Do you remember that I could throw you in a wrestling match whenever I pleased, though you are a year older? Oystein said, but I also remember that you did not win in the contests which required agility. Sigurd said, Do you remember that when we were swimming I could duck you under whenever I pleased? Oystein answered, I swam as far as you did, and I could swim equally well underwater. I could also skate so well that I know of no one who could compete with me in that sport, but you could not skate better than an ox. Sigurd said, It seems to me that it is a sport better fitted for chieftains to be able to shoot well with bow and arrow, but you cannot use my bow if you draw it with your feet. Oystein answered, I am not so strong with the bow, but there is little difference in our ability to hit the mark. In skiing, I am your superior, and that has hitherto been accounted a fine sport. Sigurd said, It seems to me especially befitting a chieftain that he, 
who was to be the leader of others, should be tall and strong and better able to wield the weapon than other men, so that he can be easily recognized where many are assembled. King Oystein said, It is no less important that a man is handsome. He is then easily recognized in a multitude. That too appears to me to be a quality of a chieftain, for fine clothes suit well a handsome man. I am also better versed in the laws than you are, and when we speak I am more eloquent. Sigurd said, It may be that you know more tricks in law than I do, for I have had other things to contend with. No one denies that you have a smoother tongue, but many say that you do not always keep your word, but that you take your promises lightly, that you seemingly agree with everyone you talk with, and that is no kingly conduct. King Oystein said, When people bring their suits before me, my first thought is to bring the cause of each party to a conclusion that will seem best to him, but then comes also the counterpart, and the quarrel is then often adjusted in a way satisfactory to both. It often happens that I promise to do what people ask of me, for I desire that all should go away well pleased. But I have the choice also, if I wish, to do like you, and threaten everybody with punishment, and I have heard no one complain that you do not keep your promise. King Sigurd said, It has been generally recognized that the expedition which I made when I left our land was an achievement worthy of a chieftain, but you stayed at home like your father's daughter. King Oystein answered, Now you touch the ulcer. I should not have started this conversation if I could make no reply on this point. It should almost seem as if I sent you from home like my sister when you were equipped for the expedition. King Sigurd said, I suppose you have heard that I fought many battles in Turkey, which you have heard mentioned. I was victorious in all of them, and secured a great deal of valuable booty, such as never has been brought to this land. I was most honored where I met the best men, but I am afraid that you are still the homebred greenhorn. King Oystein said, I have heard that you fought some battles abroad, but it was of more value to our country that I erected five churches from the very foundations. I also constructed a harbor at Agdenes where there was no harbor before, and where every sailor had to pass in going north or south along the coast. I also built the stone tower in Sundholm Sound, and the royal hall in Bergen, while you sent Saracens to the devil in Turkey, which I think was of little benefit to our kingdom. King Sigurd said, on my expedition I went even as far as the river Jordan, and I swam across the river. But on the river bank are some small trees, and among these I tied a knot, and spoke over it that you, my brother, should untie it, or you should be spoken of accordingly. King Oystein said, I will not untie the knot which you have tied for me, but I might have tied you a knot which you would have been far less able to untie, the time when you sailed with one ship into my fleet on your return. After this they remained silent, and both were angry. A more serious collision between the two kings occurred in connection with the suit brought by King Sigurd against his lendermand, Sigurd Ranison, whom he accused of defalcation and fraud. Ranison had been a faithful friend and companion of King Magnus Barefoot, and he was married to Skeldvar, King Magnus's sister. He had been appointed royal tax collector in Finmarken, and had a monopoly on the trade with the Finns. King Sigurd accused him of having withheld sixty marks of silver yearly, which rightfully belonged to the royal treasury, and Ranison feared that, although he was innocent, the decision might go against him when the suit was brought before the thing. He therefore hastened to Viken, placed his case before King Oystein, and asked his assistance. Oystein investigated the matter carefully, and advised Ranison as to what course to pursue. In the spring, King Oystein went to Trondhjem for the purpose of bringing about a reconciliation between Ranison and King Sigurd. 
but Sigurd summoned a by-thing where he accused Ranison of having collected taxes and of having seized the trade with the Finns without authority. Oyston pointed out that the case was of such a character that it could not be tried at a by-thing, but would come under the jurisdiction of a regular thing, and Sigurd had to postpone the matter. He summoned a thing to meet within two weeks, and left the meeting with his men. At the appointed time, both kings appeared at the thing with a large number of armed followers, and Sigurd reiterated his accusations against Ranison, who maintained that he was innocent and that the king had been misinformed. Oystein spoke very eloquently in Ranison's behalf, and showed that if the case was to be settled according to law and justice, it would have to be brought before the Thrandarnest thing, as the thing which King Sigurd had mentioned had no jurisdiction over a vassal. After the logmaind, those learned in the law, had carefully weighed the matter, they declared the point raised by King Oystein to be well taken. The thing had to be adjourned, and King Sigurd summoned Ranison to plead his cause at the Thrandarnest thing within a fortnight. Both kings gathered strong forces and met on the day appointed. When King Oystein approached the thing, he said to Ranison, What offer doest thou intend to make, and how wilt thou defend thyself today at the thing? Ranison answered, From you I expect to get counsel and help. Oystein said, Come now hither if thou wilt follow my advice, and give me thy hand as a token that thou wilt transfer thy cause to me. It is proper that we brothers should look each other in the eye and see who is best versed in the law. This was done, and Oystein went to the thing with his men. King Sigurd repeated his charges against Ranison, and Oystein again spoke in his defense. But when Sigurd declared that he was determined to have the case settled according to the law, King Oystein said, I have indeed said, brother, that you should bring this case against Ranison before the Thrandarnest thing, but since a slight change has now taken place, so that the kings themselves are parties in the case, it cannot be decided at a focus thing, but must be brought before the log thing. The frosta thing alone has now jurisdiction in this case, and there it must be decided, if it must absolutely be decided according to law. I have taken upon myself this case against Sigurd Ranison, so that we kings are now parties in it. This you cannot gainsay. King Sigurd declared that he would not yield, and he summoned Oystein to appear before the Frosta thing. But this thing had already been adjourned, and would not assemble again till the following summer. When the log thing convened, King Sigurd preferred his charges against Ranison in the most carefully prepared legal form, and Oystein undertook to conduct the defense. The lenderman Jan Mornev, a man very learned in the law, was leader and spokesman for the Lagretha. It is clear that Logmaind were also present at the thing. Ronison was able to prove that King Magnus Barefoot had granted him the trade with the Finns as a monopoly, and that he had made the provision that this grant should also continue throughout the reign of his sons. It was for the thing, then, to decide whether Magnus could make a grant for a period extending beyond his own reign. The Logmaind found that the king could make permanent grants, but in order to be valid such grants had to be published at all the log things, Frosta thing, Gula thing, etc., but Ronison had no witnesses to prove that he had complied with the law on this point. King Sigurd declared that he would not recognize this to be the law, that a king could make a grant for a longer period than his own reign, and maintained that it had now been proven that Ronison had no right to the trade with the Finns. Oystein maintained that the king had the right to make such grants, but as it seemed impossible to wholly remove all doubt on this point, the chieftains proposed that the king should cast lots as to whose view should prevail. To this they consented. Sigurd was successful, and he declared his view to be adopted. 
The point was now raised whether Ronison had gained possession of the wares which he had collected, without the consent of the owners. The landerman Bergthor Bach testified against him on this point, and King Sigurd demanded that the defendant should be declared guilty and punished. But Oystein had not yet exhausted all his resources in this legal duel. He said that it seemed to him to be very unjust to find Ranison guilty when King Magnuson made the grant in behalf of his sons, and it had hitherto not been revoked. He requested the thing to pause a few moments before rendering a decision, and this was granted. He then called witnesses to prove that the case had already been dismissed at three previous things, and showed that when a case, because of irregular procedure, had been dismissed thrice, it could not again be brought before a thing. This law point was accepted by the Legretta as applying to the case, and no decision could be given by the thing. We can scarcely blame King Sigurd for waxing wroth when he again found himself worsted in this way. He left the thing and vowed that since Oystein had blocked justice by shrewd tricks, he would now seek it in some other way. The relations between the brothers were now strained to the breaking point, and civil war seemed imminent. In the evening after the thing adjourned, Oystein returned to his residence and talked with his men about the trial just concluded. He asked Ranison what he thought of the outcome, and Ranison answered that he was very thankful to the king for what he had done for him. The Morkenskina continues, Shortly afterwards, Sigurd Ranison found an opportunity to leave the house. It was late in the evening, and when he had assured himself that no one noticed him, he walked hastily away alone. He had no mantle, he wore a scarlet coat and blue trousers buttoned outside the coat and buckled about the waist. In his hand he carried a javelin with a handle so short that his hand touched the iron. He walked down the street and did not stop until he came to the wharf which touched the stern of King Sigurd's ship. A man sat there, keeping guard. Ranison asked permission to enter the ship, but the guard refused. Choose then, said Ranison. Leave the wharf now, or this spear will pierce you. The guard withdrew, and he entered the ship and walked forward towards the front. There the men were seated by the tables, and no one noticed him until he knelt before the king and said, I do not wish, King Sigurd, that you brothers, as it now appears, should begin war against one another for my sake. I will rather give myself and my head into your power. Do with me as you please, for I will rather die than cause hostilities between you and your brother. Many of the men interceded for him, and begged Sigurd to show him mercy since he had surrendered himself to the king. King Sigurd said, You are truly a noble man, Sigurd Ranison, and you have taken a course which is best for us all. It looked as if misfortune was about to happen, so great that God alone could know the outcome. I had decided to go up to Yulfold in the morning with my men and fight with King Oystein. I am now willing to bring about a reconciliation if you will leave the matter to my decision. This Ranison did. King Sigurd said, I will not delay settlement, for this case has been long drawn out. You must pay a fine of fifteen marks, which sum is to be paid in full tomorrow before the services are at an end in the Christ Church. My brothers intended to disgrace me, but I will guard their honor as carefully as my own. You must pay five marks to King Oystein and five marks to King Olaf, and you must pay them before you pay me. This fine you are to pay in pure gold, for I have been told that you have grown rich in gold from taxes which you have collected. But if you do not pay this money exactly in the manner which I have stated, the reconciliation between us is at an end. Sigurd Ranison answered, I thank you, my lord, for your willingness to become reconciled, howsoever it may be with my wealth. 
Sigurd Ranesson had no gold, but he succeeded in borrowing five marks from his friends. This sum he first offered King Oystein, but he refused to accept it, and told Ranesson that he would make him a present of it. When he brought the gold to King Olaf, he said that he would do as his brother Oystein had done. Finally, he offered Sigurd the five marks. The king said that he would give him the gold if he would be his friend in case hostilities should ever break out between him and Oystein. Ranesson answered, I hope that you will never again disagree, for I wish both you and your brothers well, but however much gold will be at stake, yes, even if it should cost me my life, I will esteem no one higher than King Oystein as long as I live. The king then gave him the gold without condition. Ranesson thanked him, and invited the king to dine with him that same day with as many followers as he wished to bring, and King Sigurd accepted the invitation. After mass, he went to Ranesson's house with forty men. When they entered the hall, they found it beautifully decorated with tapestries and weapons. The walls were hung with shields, and everything was so elegantly arranged that the king and his men were quite surprised. The feast was very magnificent and lasted the whole day. Ranesson and his men waited on the guests, carried in beverages and everything which they wanted. When they were gone, so that the king was alone with his followers, he said to them, Where have you ever seen a house of a vassal furnished like this? You will not find the like even in the halls of kings. It surpasses anything that is to be seen anywhere. Bergthor Bach answered, Fine weapons these are indeed, and everything is beautifully arranged. But it would have been a greater honor for our host if he had owned some of these fine things himself and had not borrowed them all. King Sigurd became offended and replied, We can see how many friends the man has when we notice that he can get from others everything which he wishes. But thou hast not spoken kindly. Ranesson now stepped into the hall, and he had heard what had been said. When the bells tolled for the vespers, the king prepared to leave. Ranesson gave him costly presents and invited him to return after the vespers to drink a toast to the memory of Christ. This invitation the king accepted. When King Sigurd and his men returned to the hall, all the shields had been removed except an old shield and a mantle which hung by the table where the drinks were served. A sudden change has taken place while we were gone, said Sigurd. It is but to be expected, my lord, said Ranesson, that each one wants his articles returned. I own no shield save this old one which hangs yonder, and whether or not I am to keep that you shall decide. The story of this shield is as follows. We accompanied your father, King Magnus, on his expedition to Ireland, and we landed for the last time on the Irish coast, which we should not have done. An invincible Irish army came against us. A battle began, as you know, and the great misfortune happened that King Magnus, your father, Stalara Oivind Alboga, and many other brave heroes fell. Our army fled, and all hurried to the ships as fast as they could, but I was not among the first to flee. As they hurried to the ships, a deep swamp near the coast retarded their flight. They attempted to jump over it, and some succeeded, but others did not, and many of those who did not get across were stabbed with spears. When we approached the swamp, I saw a man in front of me. He had this shield on his back, and this mantle about him. When he noticed that it was difficult to cross the swamp, he first threw away the shield, then he tore off his mantle. He wore a silk cap, and the most honorable thing he did, it seemed to me, was that he did not also throw away the cap. It seemed to me that this man was Bergthor Bach, but Vidkun Jonsson knows, for he was present when I picked up the shield and the mantle. In the battle I had had no shield, 
Since then I have kept this shield, and now, my lord, you may decide whether I or Bergthor should own it. The king answered curtly, Keep thou the shield. The king left, and Bergthor was very angry. Shortly afterward, King Olaf died, as has already been told. Sigurd and Oystein were both kings, but from this time on they were not real friends, though peace was maintained while they lived. King Oystein died in 1122, 33 years of age, at Hustad in Romsdal, and was interred in the Christ Church in Trondheim. At no man's buyer had there been so many mourners since the death of King Magnus the Good, the son of St. Olaf, says the Heimskringla. The report of the case against Sigurd Ronison is one of the most valuable documents in all saga literature dealing with Norse jurisprudence. It brings to view a highly developed legal system adapted to an intricate court procedure by astute lawyers, whose skillful pleadings remind us of the proceedings in modern common law courts. The laws had not been made by great lawgivers, but had been gradually evolved from the sense of justice of the whole people. The things, both local and superior, gave the people an opportunity to participate directly in the deliberations on all important public questions. All controversies were adjudicated there, and the decisions rendered expressed the best sentiment and most intelligent will of the community. This system developed in time an intimate knowledge of the law, the love for its details, the pride in its intricacies, but also the profound respect for its authority which was the virtue and strength of the Norse social organization. The thing system developed in the people an ability for self-government, a sense for legal justice, a regard for the rights of the individual which made arbitrary decisions and tyrannical government impossible. The people in council at the thing was the highest tribunal and authority in the land, before which even kings had to plead their cause. During the centuries in which the life and traits of the Norsemen were rapidly fashioned into a permanent national character, these institutions of popular self-government were developing in the Norwegian people the spirit of freedom which expresses itself in an intense love for individual autonomy and national independence in all subsequent Norwegian history. End of chapter 54